Well, good morning. It is such a shame that we only sing some of these hymns at certain times of the year. Is there a more beautiful, moving reality to sing and reflect on and to drive into your heart than that God has become flesh and that our Savior has been born? I love this time of year, and I know we're reformed, so I don't know if we're going to call this Advent, or if we're going to call it Christmas, or if we'll just not call it anything. I don't know. But isn't it a glorious time where even if you're trying to not do those things, you still end up thinking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Or we have this special opportunity to reflect on our God who has become flesh, who has come, who has dwelt among us, and he has done so save us from our sins and even more than that to bring us to himself well what i would like to do this morning um, is unfold for you one of my favorite advent or christmas or just nondescript passages in the scripture and that is isaiah chapter 15 verse of chapter 57 verse 15 just one verse um, to read this and to help us understand the big picture. I'm going to read Isaiah 57, uh, 15, and then I'm going to move over and I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 2. And I want you to, to hear Isaiah 57 through the filter of what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. This is the word of our living God. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, and by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of our God. Let us give him praise and thanks and ask for him to drive it into our hearts this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we praise you for 
being the God who is transcendent and yet in the kindness of your heart and for the glory of your great name, you have decided to reveal yourself to us, especially revealing yourself to us in words and specifically through this word in your scripture. And so we ask you this morning as we come into this place and as there are distractions that are part of this time of year, as there are still heavy hearts, Lord, uh, that are, are wrestling to grieve as those who have hope, as we are reflecting upon the weightiness of the future of this congregation, Lord, with regards to her shepherd. Lord, help us not to set it aside, but help us to receive your word in the midst of these things so that the reality of your presence would bring to us the comfort and the guidance and the power that we need to be your people in this world. We ask that you would do this. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1943, there was a German theologian slash pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I would imagine some of you have heard his name. If you haven't, Bonhoeffer, uh, even though he was a pastor and a theologian, or especially because of those things, he was one of the few Christians in Germany that was willing to be vocally in opposition to Adolf Hitler. Even going on to the radio and announcing to the entire nation, or denouncing to the entire nation, this evil and wicked man, Adolf Hitler. Later, some would say because of some misplaced zeal, he actually got caught up into being, a, being part of a plot that was going to try to overthrow the Nazi government because of the evil, because of the wickedness. But he got caught. The plot was discovered. His name was, it was part of the names uh, that, that you know, they, the government knew, that these were the guys who were a part of this plot. And so what happened was he was arrested, he was court-martialed, and he was thrown in the prison. He was thrown in the prison for trying to stand up for what he believed was God's love, God's righteousness, God's holiness, trying to stand up, especially for the least of these that were being tortured and tormented by the Nazi government. He was trying to serve Christ. And he finds himself in prison. He also finds himself newly engaged. So December 13, 1943, writing from prison, writing to his brand new fiance that he will now not get to see at Christmas. That he believes he will never see again. He writes these words. 
Be brave for my sake, dearest Maria. Even if this letter is your only token of my love this Christmas tide, we shall ponder the incomprehensibility of our situation and be assailed by the question of why, over and above the darkness already enshrouding humanity, we should be subjected to the bitter anguish of a separation whose purpose we fail to understand. And then, just when everything is bearing down on us to such an extent that we can scarcely withstand it, the Christmas message comes to tell us that it is our perspective that is wrong and that what we take to be evil and dark is really good and light because it comes from God. Our eyes are at fault. That is all. God is in the manger. Wealth in poverty, light in darkness, comfort in abandonment. No evil can befall us, whatever men may do to us. They cannot but serve the God who is secretly revealed as love and rules the world and our lives. Now, do you hear that? This guy who was in prison. He had been trying to serve Jesus. He was trying to encourage Christians. And part of it was, stand up. Stand up against evil. There's this obvious evil. What a lot of people don't realize is, is that the National Lutheran Church actually became a wing of Adolf Hitler's propaganda. The church was not standing up for truth and for love and for righteousness, for justice, or for mercy. And he tried to serve, and he tried to encourage the church. And he, of all people, is now in prison. Now, that's mind-boggling to us at times because we tend to get caught up in this idea that if, if I'm serving God and if I'm serving His purposes, well then th the, things should open up. Things should widen out and I should be able to serve and God will bless and everything will be lovely. He serves. He gets engaged. He gets arrested. He is sentenced to death. He now languishes in a prison and he is writing encouragement to her. Be brave and realize what you and I are tempted with right now is we are tempted to only see and understand our circumstances in light of our perspective when the perspective that we need to be looking at this circumstance through is the reality that God is in the manger. Is that not just an earth-shattering reality? Not just that God 
is present with us or that God loves us and He can get us through or, or just remember that all things work for the good of those. But that God, yes, in doing all of that, it starts out in the form of a baby. How do you respond when you find yourself smack dab with a, an acute awareness of what is always true about you, but what we do such a good job of lying to ourselves and deceiving ourselves about? We so tend to want to fight and scratch and think and do anything we can to hold on to this facade of a reality that somehow I'm strong, that somehow I'm in control of what's going on around me, that somehow I can be the one that is really influencing my life and, and that I can be the one if I do step one and step two and step three, that here's the great thing that I should get. But then you go to the doctor. Routine checkup. The doctor comes in with your lab results. I'm sorry to tell you this, but you have cancer. Things are going along. You're feeling strong. You feel like things are great. Next thing you know, you're in the hospital. Well, but this is abnormal for me, so I'm going to recover from this. And next thing you know, your loved ones are wrestling with the sadness that you have gone. How do you respond when the reality of what the world is because of the presence of sin rips away the facade of you thinking and convincing yourself that you're strong, that you are somehow in control, or that at least you know ways in order to make things go the way you want them to go. And all of that gets ripped apart. And what becomes exposed is the real you, that in reality, you and I are weak, we are not in control, we cannot dictate anything. We do not have the power and influence that we think we have. And all of it gets exposed. And you're left there in the vulnerability of the real you. Well, this is not just the question and the challenge that's before Bonhoeffer as he's writing from prison. This is exactly the problem and the question that is set before God's people in the book of Isaiah. If you want to understand the setting of this prophecy, this long 66 chapter prophecy where God is communicating to his people, if you want to understand the setting of this prophecy, God is coming to his people and he is coming to a people who are the smallest little bitty blip on a map. 
They are the smallest nation in the ancient Near Eastern world. They are the smallest geographically. They are the smallest in terms of their population. They are certainly one of the smallest in terms of their army, in terms of their economy, in terms of their ability to wage war. Everything about them in terms of their external reality is that they are small, they are little, they are seemingly insignificant, and they are weak. And the people of God are aware of this. But unfortunately, rather than them being able to embrace the weakness and go to Yahweh with it and to trust the promises that he had given to them in the covenant, they started strategizing. They started thinking, well, maybe there are some things that we can do that will make us not as weak or not as vulnerable. Maybe what we can do is we can enter into some treaties with these big, massive superpower countries that surround us. Egypt was to the south. Assyria is to the north. Babylon is to the east. They're, they're surrounded by superpowers. And, and what a lot of people don't seem to recognize, when you read history of uh, this time, the, the land of Palestine was, it was basically known as being this strip of green grass that when the Egyptians would come up from the south to attack the Assyrians, there was this little strip of green grass where the soldiers could eat food. Or if Assyria was going to go south towards Egypt, there was this little strip of green grass that the soldiers for Assyria, you know, that, that it provided them food for their, their journey to warfare. And the same for Babylon. It was this little insignificant strip of land that provided conquering armies food. And they know this. But rather than trust Yahweh, they try to establish treaties with these different superpowers. And the result is that rather than trusting Yahweh, they start trusting in themselves. And worse yet, they begin trusting in their enemies. And why did they do this? Well, in the ancient Near East, if a country was big, if it was strong, if it was powerful, if it was rich, it was the result of them having superior gods. And so if Egypt was this big thing, it was well because Egypt must have these big gods. Or if Assyria is this big thing, it must be that Assyria's gods are big gods. Or, or if Babylon's this big thing, do you get the picture? There was this idea that the bigger and stronger your God was, it would obviously mean that you would be bigger and stronger and richer. So what did the people of God do? What they decided was, well, we're going to keep worshiping Yahweh. So we're going to keep this. But let's hedge our bets a little bit here. And let's also worship the gods of Egypt and worship the gods of Assyria, and worship the gods of Babylon. Well, we're going to keep Yahweh. I mean, Yahweh is awesome, right? I mean, we've got this temple, right? And we've got these promises, and God has said, you know, look, hey, you're good. But, you know, let's add a little something to that. Let's, let's, you know, embrace some of these other gods as well. Yeah, we're keeping Yahweh. No, we're not, we're not leaving him behind. We're just going to kind of add some things. 
What God does is he comes to uh, his people through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, you're idolaters. I would almost rather you stop worshiping me altogether if you're going to worship these other gods. By no means, try to mix it. And the result is, he says, I did make promises to you, and my presence has been in your temple. And, and, and because of that, there, are, there is this protection that has existed because I promised it. Oh, but you know what? I think you may have forgotten that at the same point that I promised this protection, I also promised curse if you ever broke the covenant and decided to turn to other gods. And so God says, you know what? You know what my faithfulness requires now? My faithfulness now requires me to be true on those promises as well. And so you want the gods of the nations because you think the nations are superior? Well, then I'm going to bring those nations in and I'm going to give you over to them. And so this small, seemingly weak, insignificant people who are scared because of their vulnerability, what ends up happening is they start to become smaller. Because what does God do? He comes in, he divides the kingdom, and the ten northern tribes become Israel, the southern two tribes become Judah, And what happens is the northern ten tribes, they go completely into idolatry. And so God brings Assyria in and Israel disappears. And later, Judah does the same thing. So the people of God who were 12 tribes become the people of God who were two tribes. And then guess what happens? Babylon comes in and they become the people of God with no tribes in the promised land. All of the people of God are scattered. And the question before them, as God says, I'm going to do this, the question before them is, well then what is the state of the promises of our God. What does this mean about the person of our God? What does this mean about the presence of our God? What does this mean about the protection of our God? What does this mean about the provisions of our God? What does this mean for us? Does this mean that the reason this is happening is because God is too small? Is this because God's promises just weren't quite good enough? Well, obviously the answer is no. And God in his mercy doesn't allow this statement of covenant curse that is coming to be the final word to his people. And so he gives his people a word of hope that there is going to be salvation for his people. But that salvation is not going to be a salvation from judgment. It's going to be a salvation through judgment. And the entire book, 
the entire prophecy of Isaiah is really just a recounting of the entire sweep of redemptive history. As, Isaiah, as God through Isaiah will talk about creation, we'll talk about redemption, and we'll talk about consummation. As, as Mike read a passage from, from that section of Isaiah that talks about that coming consummation of the redemption that God is bringing his people. And so there is this word of hope that redemption is coming. There is this hope that consummation is coming. And the consummation is described in the book of Isaiah as being a new creation. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. So this big sweeping description of what God is doing in redemptive history, he sets before his people so that his people who are faced with the reality of their weakness, not just because they're small in a geopolitical reality, not just because they're small in a military uh, reality, not just because they're small because of, um, of socio and economic realities, not just because they are small because of sinful realities. God is going to do something for his people that is going to be magnificent. But what I want to draw your attention to this morning in Isaiah 57, 15 is not the what he is doing. The what he is doing is awesome, right? The what he is doing is incredible. It should knock your socks off. Unless you wear those like big, long, tight socks like I do. But it should knock your socks off, right? It's amazing. It's incredible of what God is doing. But you know what is even more amazing? You know what is even more incredible? is the way God will choose to do it. What does God tell us about the way he is bringing hope to his frail, small, weak, seemingly insignificant people? What's the way he will do this? He says... I, who am high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. Now let's just stop right there. Can someone, does anybody want to get up here and tell us what that means? What it means to inhabit eternity? Now, unfortunately, I'm kind of a big guy. And I take up a good amount of space. Can you picture what it is to inhabit eternity? Well, one of the ideas there, that it's, a, it's an obvious one, but it doesn't make it any easier, is, well, if you inhabit eternity, that, oh, well, that just simply means that you're limitless. Oh, well, <laughs> that didn't help matters, did it? The limitless God. The God who has no boundaries. The God who has no weaknesses, the God who has no problems, the God who has no shortcomings, the God who is perfectly perfect, who is completely transcendent to the point 
that he is incomparable because to, to have something to be compared to, there has to be something close enough to who you are that the two can be compared. But God is so holy and transcendent and other, there's not even anything that can be compared to him. He is unique. He is self-existent. He is limitless and eternal, and he inhabits eternity. And he says, I dwell in the high and holy place. And we expect that. We expect that of the Lord. We expect that of someone that is eternal and limitless and amazing and beautiful and, and, and just incredible. Well, of course you're exalted. And of course you're high and you're lifted up. But nobody knows what he says here. I am those things and I do dwell in the high and holy place. I dwell in this limitless reality in which I am bent onto myself in perfect love and glory and amazement. And yet, I am also the one who dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Notice that he doesn't say here, I dwell in the high and holy place, so I revive the heart of the contrite. He doesn't jump from one to the other, which is exactly what you and I would probably do if we were trying to give comfort or confidence to someone that was struggling, that had asked for our help. We would go to them and we would say, well, yeah, well, here, here are the resources I have. Here's what's available to me. And so trust me, I can help you with this. Notice what he says. He doesn't go right from, I am holy and exalted and eternal and limitless so let me revive your heart what he says is i am high and holy and i'm eternal but i am also right down here with you who are lowly who are contrite and there's a word play here in the hebrew where this idea of contrite and lowly a spirit can be seen or pictured in terms of dust. I dwell with those who have been and are being ground into dust. The word play here, beloved, is not simply that if you're struggling, God can help you by coming to you what it says here, if you have been so overtaken by sin that you are ground into dust, that God will come to you in the dust. What happens, does the Bible tell us, when Adam who became flesh when he would die. What does the Bible tell us happens to the body in death? Yeah. To dust you have been made, to dust 
you will return. What the Lord is telling us here in this very veiled picture is nothing less that even though I am life, I will humble myself to the point of death by entering into your death with you so that I can revive your God is promising to do this awesome thing for his undeserving people by taking on flesh, by being humbled, even to the point of becoming dust, in order that the dust may be revived and brought back to life. Is that not amazing? Do you see the beauty of having this time to think and reflect and to pray and to sing and to set your heart on this amazing reality of what the Christian or the Christmas message is to us? That God not only is going to help the humble become exalted, he's not just going to help the lowly be, you know, rise up in their estate, he's not even just going to help the dead become alive, but the way he's going to do it is by humbling himself, by becoming dead, and by rising from the dust that he will go through it for us and that we who are united to him by faith will go through it with him so that the salvation that he is promising is the salvation he is accomplishing, not by keeping us from judgment, but taking us safely through that judgment onto the other side. And he has chosen to do this from the perspective of the estate of the deepest humility that you could ever imagine as one who was God but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but humbled himself. And he came in the form of a servant and he was humbled even to the point of death. What is beautiful here is that this self-existent, independent, transcendent God says, I'm going to accomplish my purposes by actually making myself flesh and dependent and humble. Is there any greater picture of dependence and humility and weakness and seeming insignificance than the form of a baby. Do you realize what God is saying here is, I am going to accomplish these purposes by becoming so small and so seemingly insignificant that I'm going to have my son born to the smallest, least impressive, most insignificant couple that have never even been heard of and would never have even been known unless I did something through them. And what's going to happen is I'm going to become actually dependent to the point where my son is going to have to be held 
and he's going to have to be swaddled, and he's going to have to be nursed, and he's going to have to be loved. And through that, beloved, I am going to constrain everything towards the new heavens and the new earth. What is amazing, beloved, is not just what he is doing or how he is doing it, but lastly, that he invites us to participate in this mission with him, and he invites us to do it in the way that he is accomplishing it. What I mean by that is this. There is no need for us to fight weakness. And there is no reason for us to try to convince ourselves that we're not lowly. And there is no reason to try to convince ourselves that I'm strong in and of myself. And there is cert- certainly no reason to, to try to trick ourselves into thinking the only way I could ever serve God is if I just get my life completely together. And if I have enough money to do it, if I have uh, enough gifting to do it, or if I, I have enough time to do it, or if I have enough this, or I have enough that, or whatever it is, beloved, what he is telling you is this. He goes, I want your dependence. I want you to become the baby because that is what I use. God loves to put his power and his splendor on display through the form of what looks low and weak and and seemingly completely insignificant. And that is what he is using to constrain everything to the new heavens and the new earth. Are you feeling weak this morning? Are there some emotions that you're wrestling with because of the reality of some of the loss that has happened? Are you feeling small as a congregation as you have watched numbers walk away? Do you feel like, man, we just seem to get smaller and smaller and smaller, and so maybe we're not that important. Maybe we're not that significant. What, you know, what, what impact can we really have if we're this small? We, maybe we just need to really focus on trying to get each other strong so that we can go out and maybe do something. Are you feeling weak? Are you feeling small? Do you feel like maybe in this community you might seemingly be insignificant? especially as uh, Presbyterians in the midst of a Baptist country, then great! You're ready. You are ready to be used by God as He is ready to constrain everything that is going on here in Dallas and Hiram and the surrounding area as he is ready to take this and to constrain it to his eternal purposes. If you are feeling that weakness, if you are aware of feeling low, if, if, you, if it's, uh, there's this acute awareness of, man, I just don't seem to have any power or any influence within myself, then, beloved, God is in the manger. And your perspective is starting to get corrected. And the way that you see yourselves and you see this church and you see the ministry here is starting to go in the right direction. Because the reality here is that God just absolutely loves 
to use weak, seemingly insignificant things to put on full display his glory and his power and his splendor. Beloved, this Christmas, remember that it is God who is in the manger. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, these realities are too good for us. It is too hard for us to understand. But yet we praise you that in your mercy you give us the faith that is needed to to begin to grasp hold. And we ask, Lord, that even in that smallest hold that we have on, on what you are saying and what you are doing, that we would make ourselves vulnerable to that and that we would be willing to receive it and that we would be willing not to completely understand it, but to trust you through it. And that we would open ourselves to you and say, here we are, Lord, send us. And so, Lord, I don't pray this morning that you would help those who feel weak to feel strong. And I don't pray that you would help those who feel lowly to feel exalted. I don't pray, Lord, for them to have their perspective changed. I pray, Lord, that they would come to trust you in the embracing of the truth so that they would be open to you doing great and mighty things through them. Lord, this is not the world's logic about success. This is not the world's logic about influence. This is not the world's logic about how you get something done. But this is your logic. As you use that which is a stumbling block and that which is falling to accomplish eternal purposes that, Lord, we long to receive in the fullness as we have already begun to taste of them through the first advent of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, do great things for the glory of your great name and for the joy of your people. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.